is Murder in the Rain, where each week Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough tell true crime stories of the Pacific Northwest. Murder in the Rain contains graphic content. Listener discretion is advised. Alicia, have we covered a case with very strong religious undertones like cults, brainwashing, that sort of thing? I don't know that we have. I don't think we have. And I'm actually pretty shocked that we've been doing this for three years and I haven't touched on one yet. And that, of course, is about to change. But I find these some of the more fascinating cases. If there's one on TV, like a documentary about a cult or a movie about a cult, I absolutely watch it. One of those things like Jurassic Park's on. I have to watch it. (laughs) Oh, documentary of a cult. Got to watch it. I've done a lot of cases where the perpetrator was raised in a very strict religious household. But the case I'm planning to cover today is quite a bit more than that. One that I didn't even realize happened in Oregon. And because I know we have a group of fantastic listeners from the area this took place in, This episode is dedicated to our gals in Grants Pass, Oregon. You guys are a hoot, and I seriously hope none of you have connections to this case. In the early 1980s, several adults came together and formed a New Light Bible study group in Grants Pass, Oregon. This was a group of Seventh-day Adventists who wanted to be more in tune with God. Eventually, the group welcomed sisters Sharon and Deborah Halstead, childhood friends of the leader's husband who grew up with him in California. What started out as straightforward Bible study morphed into what modern-day religious leaders would call spiritualism or voice ministry, something that the church does not support. Eventually, the group fractured and some members began following a very unlikely prophet, one who led them down a dark path of destruction and murder. On November 3, 1988, a ranch worker at the Phoenix Horse Farm in Newburgh, Oregon, named Michael Halstead, came home to his trailer to find that it had been completely trashed. Not only had his home been robbed and ransacked, he saw that someone had written a threatening note on the wall. It read, You are dead, Mike, J.C. Michael immediately went to check on his fellow ranch worker, Marston Lemke, who lived next door. 58-year-old Marston also went by the name Mike. When Michael entered Marston's trailer, he found him slumped over his bed, dead. The next to arrive at the scene was the Newburgh Fire Department, who quickly brought in detectives after realizing that sometime during the previous evening, Marston had been shot three times, once in the back, once in his shoulder, and once in his neck. Left behind were 38 caliber bullet casings. Marston had no known enemies, and it was clear his killer knew who Michael was. Authorities investigating the crime scene discovered that the Phoenix Horse Farm had several missing items, including a brand new red 1988 Chevy 4x4 truck, a horse trailer, tackle, and a brown horse. The initial theory from police was that Marsden may have interrupted the robbery of Michael's trailer, who was likely the intended victim. He could have run to his own trailer to phone police, but he ended up being killed by the perpetrator to keep him from identifying them. Police worked quickly to try to identify potential suspects, and one of the ones they landed on was a guy named Tex Shively, a man who had previously been married to Michael's sister Sharon. 
Tex was rumored to have guns, a lot of guns. It was also known that Michael helped his sister escape her terrible marriage with Tex, taking their two children with her when she left. Perhaps Tex wanted revenge. While police in Yamhill County started investigating Marsden's murder and looking into potential suspects' motives, tragedy would strike again two days later and roughly 200 miles south of Newburgh in Grants Pass, Oregon. Just after 9.40 p.m. on November 5, 1988, Grants Pass 911 received several calls that there was a shooting near Fern Street. One caller had heard gunshots in their neighborhood and rushed to the window to see if there was a commotion. A few moments later, they saw a red Chevrolet 4x4 truck fleeing from the scene. A man named Bob Stalkup, who lived on Fern Street, was working in his home office that night when he heard three gunshots fired in rapid succession. Shortly after, he heard cries for help at his front door. He recognized the voice as his neighbor from across the street, David. It took a few minutes, but he eventually opened the door to find that no one was there, just a pool of blood. David, in dire need of help, had gone to another neighbor, Evelyn Drake, who lived next door. As she opened the door for him, he collapsed on the ground of her foyer, and she rushed to call the police. The victims of the shooting were the Greens, a small, well-liked family in Grants Pass, Oregon. David Green was a dental technician, and his wife, Lynn Ann, or Lynn, was a special needs teacher. The pair had a young son named Nathaniel, who had recently turned three. David Green was born in 1957 in California. He grew up in a strict Seventh-day Adventist family. David also went to school at a Seventh-day Adventist college called La Sierra University in Riverdale, California. He met a woman named Lynn Sapienza in his chemistry class. Now, she wasn't Seventh-day. She was actually Roman Catholic, but there are similarities in their religions, like the Trinity Doctrine, for example, so they bonded over their shared interest. Once David graduated, he moved to Grants Pass, Oregon, but he carried on his relationship with Lynn, who remained in California. Eventually, Lynn moved to Grants Pass to be with him, and the pair was married in April of 1981. Right away, Lynn began to adopt David's religion. His father, David Green Sr., led a prayer group, and the couple became very involved in that and eventually would start their own group. In 1985, the couple had their first child together, Nathaniel. Unfortunately, on that early November night in 1988, the small Green family was nearly eradicated. When police arrived at the scene at Evelyn's, they discovered that David was seriously injured but alive. They asked him who had shot him, but he was so disoriented, and when he gave them a name, he mumbled it, and they couldn't understand him. He was dying right in front of their eyes, so he was rushed to the hospital and immediately moved into surgery. They learned that David had run from his home where the other gunshots had been fired. When they arrived at the Green home, they discovered a grisly scene. Three-year-old Nathaniel had been shot in the face while he sat in his high chair, but was somehow still breathing. He, too, was rushed to the hospital and into surgery. He remained in critical condition for several days, but did eventually awake, as did his father. Sadly for little Nathaniel, he would remain paralyzed from the waist down for the remainder of his life. Lynn had died at the scene. She had been shot twice, once in the chest and another fatal shot to her head. As they searched the scene for clues, they discovered that Lynn's purse was missing, and scattered around the dining room alongside the pools of blood were several 38 caliber bullet casings. There was also a cryptic note left on the bathroom wall. Someone had scrawled the words, trust in Jesus, in red lipstick. 
Once David was out of surgery, detectives interviewed him and learned that he knew who had shot him. These were people he had been incredibly close with during his life, people he had grown up with, went to church with, and who he had recently reconnected with, the Halstead sisters. Richard and Jody Halstead had been friends with David Green Sr. and his wife Lois for many years. At one point in time, they all resided in Southern California. Their children played together, and they all shared the same faith, Seventh-day Adventist. Richard and Jody had several children, but only three of them are pertinent to this story. Sharon was born in 1952, followed by her brother Michael, whom you heard about at the beginning of the story. Their sister Deborah was born in 1957. Unlike David Green, who always stayed close to the faith his father brought him into, the Halstead sisters tried their darndest to get away from it. When Sharon was in her late 20s, she met a man named Tex Shively. Tex had been hired by her parents to do some work on their property. He was not religious, and he was old. Deborah saw him as her way out. The pair eloped and soon had their first son together, Harry, who was born when Tex was 60 years old. Yeah. Fun dad. Big age gap there. Within a few years, they had their second son, Leo. The marriage wasn't great, to say the least, and Sharon found herself desperately wanting out. She enlisted help from her brother and took the boys and left. When Sharon first left, she moved in with her parents in one of their properties in Newburgh, Oregon in 1983. But her parents didn't remain there long they decided they wanted to move to Grant's Pass to be closer to their family friends, the Greens. Their religion remained the center of their world, and soon they joined a Bible study group with a woman named Jean Ketzner in Canyonville. They had been connected to the group through David Green Sr. Not long after Sharon moved back home, her sister Deborah decided she wanted to leave Los Angeles after realizing her married boyfriend wasn't going to leave his wife for her. What? I know. Shocking, right? Weird. She left her job, packed up, and moved in with Sharon and Sharon's two sons, Harry and Leo. Now that Sharon and Deborah's parents were in Grants Pass reconnecting with the Greens, Sharon, who was still in Newburgh, also reconnected with her friend David and his wife, Lynn. They became very close very fast. Lynn, who was starting to gain a reputation among her closest friends as some sort of conduit of God, started talking to Sharon about how to improve her life. She had urged Sharon to divorce her husband and get custody of her kids officially. She claimed that demons inhabited him, and she needed to stay very far away from him. She also explained to Sharon that she had received word from God that Sharon should come live in Grant's Pass. Sharon listened. She divorced Tex, going through a nasty custody battle that her sister helped her with. And once her divorce was finalized in 1984, she decided to take Lynn's advice and move to Grants Pass with her sisters and her boys. The sisters, Sharon and Deborah, had been born and raised as Seventh-day Adventists. But, like I said, in adulthood, they had drifted away from it. Now that they were in Grants Pass, surrounded by their family and friends, they ended up diving back into their religion with full force and joining a multiple days per week Bible study group led by David and Lynn Green. Lynn became the most important fixture in Sharon's life. She depended on her for spiritual guidance. Once David Green was able to wake from his surgery and had mentioned Sharon and Deborah Halstead, police were able to track them down quickly. They located them both at Sharon Halstead's home at 414 Southeast I Street. Police began quietly setting up outside of the Halstead home late that night. 
lo and behold, right there parked at the house was the red truck that had been noted as stolen from the property in Yamhill County. This solidified what police were already speculating, that the Halsteads were involved in not one, but two murders. They quickly and quietly worked to obtain a search warrant for the Halstead home. By 1.30 a.m., the SWAT team was in place. A few hours later, they began evacuating neighbors, instructing them to go to a local Boys and Girls Club. The hostage team was ready to go by 5.30 a.m., and after that, it all went smoothly. I just have to note, that's kind of a long time. And yeah. I wouldn't wouldn't have believed that unless I witnessed it for myself. Uh, a long time ago, we had a neighbor, I think they did, were doing like a drug bust or something. Two of our friends and I were sitting in the window watching, and it took several hours mm. while they just sat in front of the house, one police officer guarding it, and then a few hours later, they brought that like baton thing and broke down the, the door. But it's funny that they can be so quietly sitting outside mm-hmm. and no one has any idea. One of the shows I watched, though, one of the neighbors knew because in the reenactment, they had her reenacting how she was hiding behind trees, <laughs> taking photos. She was apparently a journalist and was like, oh, oh. yeah, I'm getting the scoop. My neighbor or us watching like, <laughs> exactly. don't worry, we're documenting the entire thing. Exactly. Sharon and Deborah Halstead were led out of their home, placed face down on the grass, cuffed and then placed into police cruisers. Two other adults were in the home and eventually cleared of any wrongdoing. The children, who were also home, were taken to protective services. Police were positive that they had the culprits in both the murders of Marsden Lemke and Lynn Green, as well as attempted murders of David and Nathaniel Green. However, they had no idea what the motive was in each case, and they had their work cut out for them, piecing it all together. While they started their investigation, Grant's past detectives learned that a witness mentioned a black book owned by Lynn Green that might help to shed light on the case. The book turned out to be a 175-page diary, which gave authorities a peek at the lives of both the Greens and the Halsteads because the diary was focused on a prayer group that the families attended together, a prayer group that essentially outlined that they believed they were in the middle of Armageddon, the epic final battle between good and evil, and the group had to fight against evil. The Bible study group was made up of roughly 20 people, mostly adults, each of them identified as Seventh-day Adventist. Now, I've done several cases where someone in the story was from a family of Seventh-day Adventists. So in the event you're not familiar with the religion, let's do a quick rundown. Seventh-day Adventists are part of the Protestant denomination. One of the key differentiators about them is they believe in the Sabbath, so they go to church on Saturday, thus the Seventh-day part of their name. Like Jehovah's Witnesses, they believe in the second coming of Jesus Christ, thus the Advent part of the name. This religion came to be around 1844, and it grew out of the Millerite movement. That was basically people who followed the teachings and writings of a man named William Miller. He told everyone that the second coming of Christ would happen sometime between the spring of 1843 and the spring of 1844. They called that time frame the Second Great Awakening. And it was basically a big Protestant festival. Obviously, the second coming didn't happen when he said it would. So it got renamed to the Great Disappointment. (laughs) Not by them, obviously, but by people who were making fun of them. By his wife. But despite the failure, his teachings were very popular. A lot of Adventist beliefs are centered around evangelical Christianity, and they follow religious doctrines such as Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
and the infallibility of scripture or Bible infallibility. People who believe the Bible is trustworthy and you should live your life as close to it as possible. They try to eat like the Bible says, most adhering to kosher laws like abstaining from pork, rabbit, and shellfish. They highly promote vegetarianism and they avoid alcohol, tobacco, and illegal drugs. And some even avoid sugar, caffeine, and refined foods. Fun fact, we have the Adventist Church to thank for many popular breakfast cereals and meat substitutes. Alicia, say thank you. No. (laughs) The Kellogg Company was formed by William Keith Kellogg, who was the superintendent of the Battle Creek Sanitarium. Mm -hmm. I know about this guy and Kellogg and his. (sighs) Anyway, so he was a superintendent of the Battle Creek Sanitarium, which was a health resort in Michigan. And that was run by John Harvey Kellogg. Both men were Adventist and the sanitarium founded on Adventist principles. And the uh, cornflake was developed right there in the Health Institute. And you know why? Why is that? As uh, to keep you from masturbating. I didn't read that part, but. Yeah, there's a great drunk history and an Adam Ruins Ooh, Everything. I would like that. About the Kellogg brothers and how they were fighting each other and how the health resort was basically killing people. And cereal was invented to keep us keep our little idle hands well, home, busy. Homework assignment for all of us. We're going to go watch that drunk history. Uh, second homework assignment. There's also a film from 1994 called The Road to Wellville, where Anthony Hopkins plays Kellogg uh, running the sanitarium and uh, they, it's the, the development of cornflakes. It is really weird. <laughs> if Yogurt enemas, if I may <laughs> spoil that for you. Similar to Mormonism, they followed the words of a prophet in addition to their Christian doctrine. One of the early founders was a woman named Ellen G. White. Ellen claimed to have regular visions and dreams of God. It's noted that she received over 2,000 of those visions and dreams over the years. These were all dictated and eventually published so that they could be shared widely with other Adventists. The writings about her prophecies and beliefs are considered to be proven accurate by the church. That's an important thing to consider as we dive further into the story. The prayer group quickly moved from the initial days of getting close to God by studying their Bible to meetings that were ultimately akin to spiritualism. Spiritualism can be described as a belief or religious practice that is based on communication. For those of you like me who love spooky stuff and history, you probably think of the spiritualism from the 1800s, where people made a lot of money by talking to ghosts and acting as mediums, most of which were making a living by ripping people off. It's more than that, though. There are those that believe that they are communicating directly with God or with God through angels. If a group was more aligned with spiritualism, it would be referred to by church leadership as deliverance or voice ministry. And this type of thing is not endorsed by the Seventh-day Adventist church. In fact, it starts to veer toward what they would call delusional. And you can actually be dismissed or excommunicated from the church for practicing it, which I find very interesting considering a huge part of their religion is based on exactly that learning through a prophet who claimed to be speaking to God. Unlike Mormonism, Adventists have a more limited view of prophets. They don't believe in having multiple prophets. Ellen was basically the primary one and only, whereas Mormons call their senior leadership prophets, so there are a ton of them. I also like that everything you just said about the religion, and I'm sorry to anyone listening that 
is of that religion. I'm going to go ahead and doubt that anyone listening is from that religion. (laughs) But it's, I like that you just rattled off their entire religion and then this one part, we call that delusional. I mean. (laughs) Or delirious. And it's like. As "Mm, we get into this. Did you hear yourself? David and Lynn's prayer group met in their home starting in the early 1980s. And initially, it was like any other Bible group, a group of people gathering, having snacks, talking about their day, diving into Bible studies, the usual. They started meeting once a week, and then it turned into two to three times per week. The group was fascinated with what was referred to as new light teachings. This was something that came about in the 1970s. The idea was that the majority of God's teachings were being withheld from Christians for far too long. New Light followers believed that you could supplicate, ask or beg, God, and then be bestowed the privilege of seeing and talking to angels who could give you more information, how to live a life closer to God, and how to serve him properly. In 1983, the Greens group joined forces with the group out of Canyonville led by Gene Ketzner. Jean regularly performed exorcisms, claiming that she had the ability to cast out demons and could speak to God. From there, the group turned into something hard to understand or even believe to the outside person. Over the next few years, the group was heavily focused on communication through certain members to get guidance from God. Every member claimed to have some sort of power. The majority spoke to God or angels. Some saw angels. Some could read minds. Others claimed to be able to conduct space travel or spiritual travel, where the spirit leaves the body and can travel anywhere, including other planets, while the body remains in place. There were those that believed if they asked the angels and got permission on the Sabbath, they could actually visit heaven for a short period of time. For several years, the group leader, or prophet, one might say, was actually Lynn Green. She was one of several people who claimed to have been able to communicate with angels and had said Jesus actually visited her in her home multiple times. There were over 160 names of angels written in the Black Book of Angels. These were all angels people in the group had claimed to have communicated with over the years. Here are a few examples of the names. Angel of Motherhood. Angel of Mystery. Angel of Truth, and my favorite, Angel of Was, Is, and Is to Be. In the summer of 1988, months before the murders, Lynn explained to the group that she had been informed by the Angel of Motherhood that her gift of seeing and hearing angels would move to another person because the demands on her were high and growing. Lynn had her young son, Nathaniel, and God wanted to relieve her of her group responsibilities so she could focus on her family. And that's when the dynamic of the group completely changed. In June of 1988, nine-year-old Leo Shively, Sharon's young son, told the group he had begun to receive messages from God and his angels. It's amazing that the son of that woman would, I mean, what what are the odds? Truly. What are they indeed? Wow. It must be genetic. Amazing. (laughs) They are Connection bl- to the Almighty. Wow. <laughs> they are truly blessed. Oh, as are we all. Thank you. <laughs> I have I had to tell you guys um this morning I learned I could see and hear angels as well. Oh shit. <laughs> tell them what's up. Are are they are they a separate thing? Are they so, the angels of our dead people? That these are uh no, they are they're angels very like much God's above buddies. humans and okay. they are all very muscular and attractive. <laughs> They came to me in my dreams. (laughs) That was the dream Henry interrupted. 
With Mother's Day around the corner, are you thinking about a truly special gift for your mom or the motherly figure in your life? Let me tell you about mylifeinabook.com. It's a unique service that turns your mom's life stories into a beautiful book. Pretty cool, right? Here's how it works. Every week, mylifeinabook.com will send your recipient a question via email. These can be pre-written questions about, for example, your mom's life or any custom questions that you want to ask. And then she can either type her response or record her voice. And mylifeinabook.com compiles all of her responses into a beautiful keepsake book. And guess what? They can even create an audiobook using her voice recordings. It's like preserving her voice and her stories forever. Imagine discovering stories about her youth, adventures, and the challenges she overcame. This book becomes a legacy, something you and future generations can treasure forever. Your mom's given you a lifetime of stories. This is your chance to give her a way to share them. Obviously, we love anything surrounding storytelling. It's what we do. So to be able to gift this to my mom, to not only hear her stories, but the stories of my grandparents and other family members, it will create a cherished gift for all of us to enjoy. Check out mylifeinabook.com and use the code RAIN at checkout for 10% off. Create an unforgettable gift for your mom this Mother's Day. That's mylifeinabook.com and use the code RAIN for 10% off today. Leo not only became part of the group, he became a significant part of the group and would ultimately change everyone's lives. In the investigation discovery show Twisted Sisters, Harry, Sharon's oldest son, recalls waking up late one night in 1988 and hearing whispers from another room through his cracked bedroom door. He got up and listened and sneaked a peek and saw that his mother was asking Leo questions from a sheet of paper. Each time he answered, Lynn and Sharon would put money in a jar for him, essentially paying him for each time he interacted with his personal angel, an angel they dubbed the Naked Truth. Before long, Leo said that he was being given instructions by the Naked Truth on exactly how to carry out God's will. It seemed God had chosen a new prophet for the New Light group. Now that Lynn was stepping back, a nine-year-old child would soon be dictating how they should fulfill God's will. As you might imagine, the group became very divided, as some began to question the directions Leo was giving them. This communication with the so-called Naked Truth Angel benefited the Halstead family in many ways, one of which is they began stealing, all of them, from shoplifting small items to stealing large items such as motorcycles. It's estimated that in the span of a few months, they stole over $50,000 worth of merchandise. This bad behavior was explained away by the angel through the words of a child. They believed they had to do what Leo told them the angel said to, or they wouldn't be obeying God, thus becoming like non-believers. This bad behavior eventually started to cause a rift between the adults in the group. David Green didn't like where the formerly innocent prayer group was going. They started the group to become closer to God, but now it had become just a way for the Halsteads to get the things they wanted, in particular, what the children wanted. The crimes committed by the Halsteads began to escalate. Stealing was one thing, but there were new dangers rising from the supposed messages from the naked truth. Leo eventually claimed that he could tell just by looking at someone if that person was good or bad. He claimed that good people who believed in God had light all around them. 
One of the pastimes this knowledge led to was slashing tires. According to the Naked Truth Angel, crimes committed against people who were bad and taken over by demons didn't really count. Leo and Harry would take a knife to the sidewalls of tires and claim that the owners of the cars were crooks. Thus, they were teaching bad people a lesson. Soon, stealing and tire slashing led to more dangerous activities. Leo claimed that physical injury was now okay to inflict on bad people. There was one particular incident where the Halsteads were at a local park, a park Leo claimed was rife with drug deals. They went armed with maglite flashlights, and Harry attacked a couple, hitting them over the head with the flashlight. Their goal was to knock them out and take the money from their wallets. Luckily, the couple wasn't hurt badly and got away, but no one was caught after the incident. And yes, the Halstead sisters were present for the attack. At some point, the group started referencing a term called totaled. This was a word that was used to describe someone who was fully controlled by evil. They were no longer really alive inside. Their body was controlled by a demon. The Halsteads fully embraced this concept. To them, these totaled people needed to be eliminated. And Leo told them exactly who those people were. The Halstead sisters began to make a list of totaled people that they needed to kill. On the top of that list was their brother, Michael Halstead, because nine-year-old Leo claimed that the angel commanded it. So how did Marsden end up dead if Michael was at the top of the list? On October 31st, 1988, Sharon dropped the boys off at their father's house. This wasn't just a special visit with their father that they hardly got to see. The boys had a mission, and that was to steal a gun from their unsuspecting father. Tex had tons of guns, so it's not surprising that he didn't notice when the boys lifted a 38 snub-nosed handgun from his collection. A few days later, Sharon, Deborah, Harry, and Leo were off to the Newburgh ranch where they were going to kill Michael. When they arrived, they found that Michael wasn't home. The women directed the boys to trash his trailer. They poured out his alcohol all over the floor, ripped up his magazines, and threw leftover food all over the wall and floor. Harry admitted that he wrote on the walls with food under the direction of his mother, leaving behind the note that said, You are dead, Mike, J.C., J.C. being Jesus Christ. As they left Michael's trailer, Sharon and Harry went to find gas to steal, and they ran into Marsden. Marsden knew who they were and assumed they were there to see Michael, so he likely didn't think twice about it. But once they saw him, Sharon brought up that they would have to kill him as he'd be able to link them to the crime they just committed in Michael's trailer. Yeah, that sounds reasonable. Like, they trashed it and... Like, how much trouble could they get in? They could say it's a prank or something. So Sharon knocked on Marsden's door and without batting an eyelash, shot him three times right in front of her 12-year-old son, Harry. They then met back up with Deborah and Leo and left the ranch in the stolen red truck with a trailer containing a horse. Side note for all you animal lovers, the horse was okay. It was eventually located in Grant's Pass as Sharon had it boarded at a local barn. Hooray! At this point in the story, Leo claimed that the naked truth had given him more totaled people to add to the hit list, David and Lynn Green. This is likely just because they disagreed with the direction the Halsteads were taking the prayer group. They were essentially listening to everything Leo dictated. So when the Greens started questioning Leo's commands, Sharon and Deborah started to get mad. Leo saw his chances of doing whatever he wanted drifting away, and apparently that was enough to get you on the hit list. 
Sharon, Deborah, Harry, and Leo arrived at the Greens' door on the night of November 5th, which happened to be David Green's birthday. The Greens let them in, assuming they were there to wish him a happy birthday. After chatting and watching TV, the boys disappeared to the bathroom where Harry took some of Lynn's red lipstick and wrote, Trust in Jesus, on the wall. Lynn, suspicious of what the boys were doing in the bathroom for so long, went to investigate, saw the writing, and told them they all needed to leave. Rather than leaving, the four of them started gathering around the Green family, essentially blocking the exits. Deborah then took the phone so that the family couldn't call for help. Sharon pulled the handgun out of her purse and lifted it up to the family threateningly. David attempted to run away to get help. When he was asked later, after the ordeal, why he ran, he said he ran to get help because he was afraid no one would know who was attacking them. Basically, they would just all get killed and no one would ever know what happened. So he made his way out the sliding glass door from the dining room into the yard. Sharon shot him in the back near his left shoulder. He was able to continue running, and that's when he arrived at the neighbor's door. After David had left, Sharon then turned the gun on Nathaniel, who sat watching them from his high chair. She pulled the trigger and released a bullet directly into his face. Harry later reflected that he watched on in horror as his mother did it without any hesitation, which I think was very shocking for him. After Nathaniel was shot, Lynn ran at Sharon and tried to take her down. But Sharon easily, and again without hesitation, shot her in the chest. Lynn dropped to her knees, and then Sharon shot her in the head at point-blank range. David, still attempting to get one of his neighbors to open the door, heard the gunshots and his wife's final scream. As you know, the Halsteads were taken into custody in the early hours of the following morning. Sharon was charged with four counts of aggravated murder, one count of murder, two counts of attempted murder, and two counts of first-degree assault for the attack against the Greens. Deborah was charged with one count of murder, two counts attempted murder, and two counts of first-degree assault. The duo was held in jail for nearly a month before they were set to have another hearing. In that hearing, the judge agreed to allow a $550,000 bail to be set for Deborah. However, Sharon was required to remain in jail without bail. This decision was likely due to the fact that Sharon was the only one who ever pulled the trigger. Early on, the Halsteads had planned to move forward pleading insanity. I mean, kind of obvious. Yeah. Obvious there. But in May of 1989, Deborah changed her plea. She agreed to plead guilty to conspiracy to murder in exchange for a 20-year sentence with the possibility of parole. She has since served her time, got out of prison, lived in Portland, and I believe got married. And that's all I know. She's out living her life somewhere. Hmm. Her parents and her brother Michael have since died. Michael died rather young in his, uh, I think, late 40s, and I'm not sure how. Sharon followed suit and made a plea deal as well. Sharon Halstead pleaded guilty to multiple counts, including aggravated murder for Lynn Green, the murder of Marsden Lemke, and the attempted murders of David and Nathaniel Green. And she did this to avoid the death penalty, which was definitely looming over her in this case. Yeah. She never truly admitted guilt. Initially, she said she felt bad for what happened to Nathaniel, but in so many words, she continued to say that David and Lynn had to die. They were totaled. They were totally controlled by demons. But of course, when it came down to it, she pointed the finger at her nine-year-old son, 
that he convinced her to do it. She went on to have a sentencing hearing where her ex-boyfriend was the main witness. She had a live-in boyfriend for three of the years that she was in the prayer group, and they broke up a little bit before the murders. His name was John Gentry. John was one of the earliest members of the group. And once Sharon was established in the group, Lynn had told her that God wanted her and John to be together. So they dated and he ended up moving in with her. Now, this guy was so in love with her, even when he was on the stand, basically telling the court everything he knew, much of it putting himself in a bad light. But it really sealed her fate. His testimony corroborated everything they found in the Black Book of Angels. He was present for like every instance described in the book. And he had a lot of firsthand knowledge of the boy's wrongdoing since he lived in the house. He even said that Leo had threatened his life at one point. He described that for the people that believe in total, that there was basically seven doors that you have to go back through in order to be considered totaled. And one time Leo called him out and basically said, you've already gone through four of those doors. And to them, four doors means there's really no way of going back to the good. You're just like on your way to hell, essentially. Why do you have the other doors? I know it's. Sorry, I brought logic to the conversation. I don't Continue. know if what religion believes this. I didn't look that far into it. I don't know if this was like a group theory or what. But anyway, this kid said, you know, you better watch your back or I'll have your throat slit. And I, I really do believe that if John and her hadn't have broken up, this kid would have put him on the list and he would have ended up dead. But luckily for him, one of the group members said an angel spoke to them and said that Sharon was meant to marry a former Catholic priest or something and that they would get married. So she ended up dumping John. I mean, like, good. I'm glad for him. Like, he's safe now. But wow. Yeah, that's dark. In the end, Sharon was sentenced to 75 years to life in prison. This includes a Yamhill County conviction for the murder of Marsden Lemke, where she was sentenced to 30 years. She was also convicted in Josephine County, where she received a 25-year minimum sentence for the murder of Lynn Green, with consecutive 10-year minimum sentences for each of the two attempted murder charges. She's currently living in the Coffee Creek Correctional Facility in Wilsonville, Oregon, and I looked her up and it does say life, so I'm pretty sure she's just going to be there till she dies. Both of these women had their membership to the Seventh-day Adventist Church revoked. No surprise there. (laughs) Now, I mentioned before that the boys were placed in protective services once the women were arrested. They then went into the foster care system. After that, I I don't know if they had contact with their family. I think they might have, but I'm I'm guessing their father died shortly thereafter. Well, I hope the... Nine-year-old who was given the power to dictate who could live or die was given some well, oh, therapy, like heavy-duty psychiatric evaluations. Harry seems to have run into trouble at least one more time since then. He was charged with theft in 1994, but now lives in Oregon and seemingly has a normal life. Leo, while I can't seem to find his full record, has continued to run into issues with the law over the years and has been incarcerated several times. He's on Twitter, or was back in 2018. He did give an interview for an episode of Snapped about this case, but then uh, he must have gone to jail shortly thereafter because when they filmed the episode of Twisted Sisters, only his brother Harry was there to do an interview, and Harry referenced Leo's continued issues, and I, I think he has issues with drugs. I mean, 
not surprised there. What do you, how do you come back from that? I don't When while your brain is forming, you're like, you're a sent from God and you talk to angels and you can tell us who to kill and we'll actually do it. Mm -hmm. As I dove into the story, I couldn't help but realize how many of the true crime cases we cover are some sort of cycle. We see cycles of abuse, mental, physical and sexual, cycles of drug use, cycles of poverty. We even see cases of generations within a family committing murder. To me, this case had a cycle of delusion. At least three generations of Adventists in today's case believe they could communicate with God. Obviously, there was little Leo who was conditioned to understand the connection between telling people things they want to hear and getting rewarded. He learned that was good. The more he spoke to angels, the more attention and toys he received. Then he exploited it to get everything he wanted. He read between the lines of what he thought the adults wanted. Kids are sponges. He wasn't born evil. He was created. The Halstead sisters seemed to be constantly looking for something to save them. When marriage didn't work, they turned back to their religion and found like-minded people to help them bend it to their will. The Greens led a prayer group that really incubated what would turn out to be a culture that would cause so many tragic events. And before long, it was too late for them to turn away from it. Their own friends used what they learned from them against them. David Green, who comes off in interviews as an average, loving husband and father who survived this horrific event, isn't painted as anything other than that. But as you understand what happened in this case, he wasn't a normal person in a group of delusional people. He was also one of those delusional people. He spoke to angels. He touted to people that he could space travel or spirit travel. He used an invisible sword to ward off evil and create safe boundaries in the home where the prayer group met. David learned that from his father, David Green Sr. David Sr. initiated the prayer group. He believed he could see and speak to angels, and he had written down his own doctrines, which he taught to anyone who would listen. The church ultimately suggested he be excommunicated because his materials were considered anti-church. Now, I'm not pointing the fingers at anyone other than the Halsteads for the murder by any means, but I think this case is a reminder of how complex things can get, how people can share in each other's delusions. Sick people in need of help can easily fall into the clutches of manipulators, and kids are easily groomed and trained, aka brainwashed, by the very same people. I often in my head, I'm like, if I could get rid of one thing in the world, would it be guns, nuclear bombs? Uh oh, I know where this is going. It's organized religion. <laughs> it's 1000% organized religion. It's fine if you're spiritual, if you need to pray and that helps, whatever. I had a really fun stone thought the other day. I was like, we're all God. We're all like, we are our own God of you're going to talk to yourself and okay, I'm going to get through this. Help me get through this. Well, you're going to help yourself get through it and you're going to do it. That's actually a very interesting thought because some of the people in this group who heard God, um, it, uh, you know, is looking at the psychology and that's your inner voice. So not not everyone has an inner monologue. Which don't even get started on that. Those people, please write us if you're one of those people. If you don't have it, we want to interview you. But if you do, a lot of times um, people in extremist religions will mistake that inner voice Mm -hmm. as God. Because, well, because you're not supposed to have that individual will. It's just, I mean, this is just such a perfect example of how, Words that are supposed to, I think, my understanding, 
are supposed to inspire love and kindness and understanding and and helping people gets twisted and becomes the breeding ground for megalomaniacs mm-hmm. to do uh, do to do their own will like this I, you didn't do how is this person totaled and being run by demons and you're going to walk in and shoot a baby in the face what the fuck are you talking about i know how does that make you better and if you look at every issue that we have you can trace it back to organized religion money sexual abuse weapons people thinking other people are evil because they want to wear a dress or something i'm getting heated because i hate organized religion so much so i while i cruelty it has bred is unfathomable and if we wiped it from the earth we would have peace and and it would just be so much better i don't know if we would have peace but i do agree with you for the vast majority of that. However, I have a lot of religious friends who go to organized religion and it's normal everyday shit. And so I wouldn't, I wouldn't say I don't believe in it. But here's the thing. If you step back, okay, so you're talking about what this religion was doing and it's like, oh, they were talking to angels. They had their little book. They had their seven doors. They had the layers of heaven. If you, if you strip away and just read some bullet points of Catholicism, of protestants of baptists of just christianity in general it sounds just as bonkers yeah it is it's like it's a cult like i every i wouldn't go every religion is a cult mormonism is a huge huge cult well here's the thing women are told how to live and it's just the why because because organized religion is such a staple in many many countries it leaves this easy door for extremism exactly and I think everyone other than extremists can agree that extremism is very bad. Like this is when children get involved and everyone's right. a prophet and, you know, they're they have fake businesses to get money and exploit people. And I, I guess I do agree to an extent. I'm just not going to like tell someone that I'm not going to be like, hey, yeah, your religion's bullshit. I just I'm not involved in it. That's I, it. I won't say it to their face, but it also just. It, it makes me feel just maddened by the fact that one group could sit over here and say your little book with your little story is wrong. Oh, I know. When that's the book it came from. I love nothing more than like people on the street and someone reads. They say they're reading from the Bible and they're like, oh, yes. Oh, I agree with that. And then they're like, oh, it's the Quran. Or, <laughs> yeah. or they go backwards and they say it's the Quran. They're like, that's terrible. Those horrible I know. brown people. And they're like, that was the Bible. It's just if you it just But even more than that, I cannot believe that these these newer religions, they can sit back and not think it's totally cuckoo bananas that some lady claims to be a prophet, writes down a bunch of stuff and is like, this is our belief system like that. Here's what I found. The more religious people are people that do need more support. Well, you need. Yeah, you need need guidance. You need to understand that that is an inner monologue. And that's okay. That's your intuition. And that's okay. I've heard before of stories where someone was severely mentally ill and they had these visions and then people just started and people started following them. Yeah, that happens. Which which I get. But it's like that sounds like you are lost and you are needing to find some understanding and and guidance. I do think that is the creation of religion was people needed something. We all need something to strive for, whether it's your next vacation or like your next promotion. But some people need more. They need to think that there is life beyond this life, that there's something to strive to to get up in the morning. And I I get that. That is what it is. And I'm never going to say 
you shouldn't do that. It's just not for me. That kind of breaks my heart, too, because it's just uh, to need some sort of guidance to be kind or to need some sort That's of... That's true. Some sort of hellfire consequence to be decent or to have to live your life thinking you are being watched to be decent or you can't make a decision because the path is laid out already. You know, it's just. Well, and then there are the kids that are there just forced on them. They don't have a chance. But I will say I grew up in church and I took a lot away from it in terms of like morality and stuff. That's great. But I was never bullied more than when I went to church. I didn't have that. That's same why experience. I hate. That's a big part of why I hate church. <laughs> I chose to leave going regularly around nine when I started questioning things and people wouldn't answer me. Like I didn't understand why adults couldn't just be straightforward. And then I'm like, yeah. this isn't for me. Yeah. I'm sure Josh has some feelings as a boy who went to Catholic school for decades. I was just sitting in church one day. I was probably in ninth or 10th grade and whoever was talking. And I was just like, oh, this isn't real to me mm. at all. Mm. And I was done after that. Yeah. Uh, I, I really like think of different religious religions and factions and cults and all that, like uh, kind of akin to like sports team. Yeah. Like a sports team where people just yes. they pick. They're like, I love the Jets and I will follow the Jets. Forever. No matter what, no, no matter, matter how what, bad they do, no matter yeah. how bad they do. Well, and look at all the people we know who've left something like Mormonism and how hard it was to to untie themselves from the self-guilt that has it's been... It's so cruel. It's yeah. so fucking cruel. It's so... It's abusive, yeah. And and like I said, there can be ways to explore that if you think there's a higher power or energy or whatever you believe in spiritually. Without paying a without, church. Why do I have to give you 10% of my money? Why does that one guy keep getting moved when people complain that he's touching kids? Why is... Uh, why do I have to go shoot a baby in the face because a why nine-year-old Why is everything told me? made out of gold? Yeah. <laughs> Why, why is your house a mansion and then all the people who follow you are very poor? And why do they not have to pay taxes? Well, some oh, do now, but that's what God, gets me. Don't even get me started. Oof. Oh, boy. Tax exemptions. Now, here's the thing. I know we have a lot of listeners who are religious and we are open yes. to hearing from you if it is done in a nice man. We're not. I'm not calling you out. I'm Leisha Mine. I'm not going to speak for I'm her. I'm not calling you out. I just every religion's a cult and I hate it. That's just my opinion. That's nothing about you and your religion. Yeah, that vibe's not for us. But we, you know, we'll hear from you. What are your rebuttals? What are your thoughts? What are your thoughts about this case? I, I don't think anyone's going to listen to this case and be like, yeah, that seems right. Yeah. <laughs> so. and, and that's not to say I know there are people who have found God or have had a religious experience or that has those beliefs have gotten them through something. That's not to discount it. Oops, I didn't mean to do that. <laughs> I got carried away. That's not to discount those experiences or feelings. That's fine. It's acknowledging that organized religion that doesn't pay taxes and leads to abuse and shaming is a cult. Well, if religion would just stop being obsessed with what's in people's underpants and what bathrooms they go to, you know? Some of the meanest motherfuckers I've ever met in ever. my life were religious. Yeah, that's true. We could do a whole two-hour yeah. therapy session on that. So... <laughs> The book I read for this case is called Beware of Angels, Deceptions in the Last Days by Roger J. Murnau. And this is wild. A lot of this book comes straight out of court documents, newspaper articles, and even his own interviews with the Halsteads. So a lot of it is considered fact, and it all lines up with other references I had. However, his standpoint is that of a religious person. Mm. I appreciate that he does give background to some of the religious beliefs that may give context for parts of the story. 
But I did not enjoy the Bible verses and his own religious platform that he wove throughout. So it's funny because at least it's separated by like chapters and stuff. So you can skip certain chapters. But, you know, he is Seventh-day Adventist. I I do recommend it if you want to learn a little bit more about the case. But just keep that in mind. He views it through a very specific lens. The conclusion that I interpreted from him was that the Hillsteads were compromised when they did this. They were listening out for angels, but instead evil made its way in. So that's basically oh, how he describes okay. it. Like they committed murder. Oh, they Satan deceived them. Mm. It's not like, oh, a human can generally be a bad person and do this. Like right. it had to be a religious or element a mob for him. mentality, which is what this kind of yeah. has hints of. So he didn't, I don't think he stepped back at all to view it from like that lens since he is of the same religion but other than that it was pretty good and it's a, a fast read i think so if, if and you that are is interested. an interesting viewpoint yeah that's why i read yeah. it i thought oh this will be fun yeah well time to go take my blood pressure medicine <laughs> that <laughs> i next week that i just now have to prescribe to myself <laughs> <laughs> okay <laughs> bye bye <laughs> Oh, no. We don't have time today. We're on a time crunch. We can't be falling and knocking desks over. Also, I saw a, an item I love is apparently popular again hmm. called the clog. Oh, <laughs> so God. I have ordered a new pair the of wooden clogs. clogs. You know, you could just wear them whenever you want. I know, but I like <laughs> to stay somewhat relevant and in style. I think I, I should probably get better cables <clears throat> in here, too. These are like super cheap. Super cheap. <laughs> super cheap. Super, super cheap. I feel good. Well, my dirty dream was interrupted by my alarm, so I oh, get it. Oh, no. I get it. Hey, you want to give us no. some details on that dream? Yeah, who was it? No. <laughs> <laughs> was it someone we know? No. Was it a celebrity? Not my bum, my throat. I, I woke up this morning with a really bad sore throat. Uh, it's gone. From that dirty dream? <laughs> <laughs> That's why those ho those hobbits always had a fire cooking. That's right. <clears throat> Gandalf comes over. It's like, it's way too hot in there for him. <laughs> What'd you do to the guy in the dream? Person. I don't really remember. Mm -hmm. I just remember it being really good. Sounds like you spread his butt cheeks in some way. <laughs> Action. But the first season, one of the girls like met with this. <laughs> life coach that was like and now we sun our perineums <laughs> and they just like pull their dresses up That's and fun. spread them to the sun josh brolin uh burned his balls doing that um i really oh my god hello <laughs> i'm gonna start from the beginning i need to i need a little energy infusion yeah. here energy mm. infusion you can't do this you can do it my esophagus makes a lot of noises now you're really like the guy from police academy <laughs> Wow, the range, the just, can you make it sound like you're you're like a tiny person inside your own throat? No, I'll work on that though for next week. That's great. <laughs> I can't do it. <clears throat> okay, this is it. No more fuck ups. That's right. This is like great punctuation after a little mistake. I know, I'm really enjoying it's it. Fun, it makes yeah. me feel in control too. Mmm, mm. and a soft pee. 
Oh. <laughs> Your favorites. <laughs> no, not mine. I like a nice sharp hard pee. Ew. <laughs> Maybe not sharp. Barbed. Block like. <laughs> Had several children. Children. Mm. Big age. Gra- beige- oh, that was weird. That's because it's not what I wrote. <laughs> just whenever I get frustrated, I and it would be quiet because I don't like to fight. I just like to sit it out and then I get over it. Um, he <laughs> would nose whistle and I'm like, <gasps> <laughs> coming of Jesus Christ. <laughs> Any other Bibles? <laughs> David and Lynn. <gasps> I really like the clicker. I'm sorry. You're going to like it. Gives You're you going to a... keep messing up. <laughs> he begun to receive. I fucked it up. Oh, St. Peter, let me blow that horn. Toot toot. Uh, <laughs> Speaking of 1994, if you want to see <laughs> some sexy angels, watch The Prophecy starring Christopher Walken and Eric Stoltz and Virginia Madsen. Yeah. You'll learn all about the eternal fight between good and evil. And Vigo Mortensen plays the devil. Ooh, okay, I'm in it. I'm in it. All That's right. It's real good. <clears throat> Ooh, Vigo's the devil? Yes, Hello. He's, you'll, you won't believe it. Mm. Vigo! <laughs> Daddy. <laughs> Daddy Lucifer. <laughs> Hi, it's me, the little prince. Stealing was one thing, but there were new dangers rising from... Su- what? Yeah. Oh, man, I'm getting dramatic with my writing. Also, sorry to brag, but I'm totaled. <laughs> Dead inside and operated by a demon. <laughs> Texas is text. Texas guns. 12-year-old son, Haley. Haley? Who the fuck's Haley? <laughs> I'm sorry. I think you what? want to say with the trailer. I think you just said with, with trailer. Trailer. I did. I wrote <laughs> with no, trailer. I wrote with a trailer. Okay. Nope. Ow. Clip my fingy in there. Murder in the Rain is a Cascade Media production. Written and hosted by Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough. Edited by Josh McCullough. You can always contact us at murderintherain at gmail.com or through our website, murderintherain.com. If you just can't get enough of Murder in the Rain, for as little as $5 a month, you'll have exclusive access to bonus episodes at patreon.com. You can find us on all of the socials, and for more true crime, follow at M underscore Murder in the Rain on TikTok, and you can also listen to Alicia and Josh on their other show, Always Be My Sisters. And suck my balls. <laughs> <laughs>